Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be here today. We're moving on in our study uh, of this book. I'll find it here myself. Uh, if you've been with us through the course of this, this book, you, we've said this before, is that chapters 1 through 7 in this book, Paul is talking about uh, his own ministry motivations. He'll, he'll deal with that really throughout the course uh, of this whole book, and he'll, he'll use this term about commending himself, of what makes a gospel minister, what makes Paul himself valid in his ministry. And he begins in chapter 1 talking about the suffering that accompanies his ministry. He deals in chapter 2 with the difficulty that the Corinthian church has in it, the confrontation that happened between him and a significant member in that church with significant sway and influence. And then in chapter 3, he takes a little bit of a break from this, this very personal story. You've seen Paul be very heartfelt, very open in the things that he preaches uh, and he teaches. His heart is wide open in this book, how much he loves the church, how much he cares for what's going on there, how much he's concerned about their spiritual life and whether or not they're going to walk in truth according to the gospel or they're going to be deceived and walk away. The Corinthian church, you can read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but the Corinthian church has a real problem with divisions. This city existed at a time where there are lots of influential leaders. And uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that there's divisions in this church. If people say, I follow Jesus. No, I follow Paul. No, I follow Peter. Uh, and this church has a tendency to follow the next influential leader in line. So Paul really has to deal with that in this church about whether or not this church is going to stick to the gospel message, the truth of who Jesus is. So he took a break to give us an explanation of what that ministry is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He looked at the church and he said, church, you're a result of my faithful preaching of this gospel. You are a letter written by us, delivered, that you are proof of my ministry because the gospel took root in you. And then he takes probably the biggest spot in all of the New Testament to talk about the difference between the old covenant ministry of Moses and the new covenant ministry by the Spirit. And that's what Steve led us through. So that by the end of our time last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul has says, we are changed from one degree of glory to another, not by... Uh, Obedience, not by our gifts, not by our visibility, not by our popularity, but by beholding. The church grows, Christians grow by their constant exposure to the light of Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, all of those truths about how the new covenant ministry of the Spirit is more enduring, is more glorious, is more um, significant than the old covenant of Moses, what you're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is Paul's personal response to that. Paul is a man in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that lives at the crossroads of all of these uh, significant um, realities that characterize our lives. Paul is a man who has experienced Jesus, has believed the gospel, has now aligned his life with serving Jesus with all of the time that he's been given, that he would be totally faithful to the call of Christ. And where he finds himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is at the crossroads between how he views this gospel ministry personally between convictions. Do Christians ever deal 
with having to live out their convictions about what they believe about Jesus? Yes or no? Yes, we do. Paul is there. He's experienced that. Paul is going to show you that he lives at the crossroads of how he's meant to see life in this world. Do you ever look out in the world and wonder, what is going on? Do you ever look out in the world and say, it's not supposed to be that way? That inherent imbalance in our spirit, Paul is going to show us. Paul is going to explain for us the crossroads of identity. How should a Christian view themselves? How, what should our self-assessment be? How do we see ourselves? How do we understand ourselves as Christians in this world? How does Paul the Apostle understand himself? And finally, Paul is going to talk about the crossroads, the tension, the imbalance in us about how we experience and understand God's word. What does God's word do? And Paul is going to be a man. He's going to be an apostle. He's going to be somebody called by Christ, just as you were called by Christ, just as you have stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who's going to feel and experience and walk through these tensions that we all feel, the temptations that we all feel. And all of that is in six little bitty verses here. So Paul, all he's going to do for Paul is... um, Paul is an interesting character in the New Testament, about at least six that I can think of. I'm sure there may be more, but at least six different times Paul talks about his calling, his experience of knowing and experiencing Jesus. He talks about it twice in Galatians, three times in Acts his conversion is recounted. He gives it to you in 1 Timothy chapter 1, which we'll look at here in a second. But Paul's Christian experience is going to be opened up for us. We've seen it thus far in the way he cares for the church, right? We've seen it thus far in the things that burden him for people who don't understand the gospel, who may be deceived away from believing the truth of the gospel. And what you're going to see here is how Paul lives out the realities that are laid upon all of us. We, you will feel the same tension that Paul is going to explain here in 2 Corinthians 4 at some point this week, at some point in your relationship, at some point in your workplace, at some point with family, at some point with friends. You will have one of these major crises of belief in these major significant areas of life. And Paul's going to walk them through and show them what they are. Okay? Let's pray. Father... Psalm 119 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. And as we talk about the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning, I would pray that you would give light to our eyes, that we would understand things about you that we perhaps have never seen before, that we would gain greater confidence in the gospel message that we believe, that we would gain greater clarity and focus and and hope in the gospel message that is able to save our souls. So, Father, for myself, as I, as I stand here and deliver these things, I pray that you would make me a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I would say what you would have me say, that we would rely as a church on the things that are in your word, that, uh, that those would characterize our hopes, our prayers, that our great joy as a church would be, thus saith the Lord. So, Father, we pause and we ask for your word to be made plain and clear in our hearts here this morning. And then we'd honor you with our time, with our words, 
with our attention and our affection. In Christ's name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 1 down here through verse 6 here this morning. Therefore, now, therefore follows all of what Paul has just said in the past two paragraphs about the new covenant ministry of the Spirit. So as with that in mind, as Paul closes 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with verse 18, saying, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That confidence that our spiritual transformation that occurs when we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, that confident transformation. Paul is talking about the sanctification journey. The longer I live, the more I am convinced of 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. The more I am convinced that as we behold and long and consider and ponder and meditate on the beauty of who Jesus Christ is, the more godly, kind, patient, loving, long-suffering we will be. That is the foundation of the church. If you want to have significant spiritual growth, it will not come in any other form other than the beholding of Jesus Christ and looking at him. Amen? That is where it's going to come. Therefore, now Paul says, Paul is going to base all of what he says upon that new covenant reality of the beholding of Jesus Christ, better than looking at Moses, better than looking at the ministry of death, better at looking than looking at the law. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Now in context, this ministry is the new covenant ministry that he was just talking about. The Greek literally puts it like this. Having this ministry... As we have received mercy. You know, throughout the course of this book, at least up to this point, and of what you'll see going forward, is that Paul is going to answer implicit questions about his ministry all through this book. In fact, 2 Corinthians, you have to do a lot of work to ask, uh, to look behind the answer to the implicit question that is being asked in the church. So, at least up to this point, Paul's ministry confidently speaking, cannot come for what we saw in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 1, Paul's ministry can't come because of his, or his validity. His validity as a minister, the validity of his gospel message can't come as a result of his relative safety and security, can it? That if we just preach the gospel, we'll always be safe and secure. Well, Paul's life doesn't bear that out. His confidence, his commendation in the ministry, in fact, brought him to the end of himself. Remember what he said? This made us, this caused us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. We were so at the end of our life. We were so despairing of life itself. We totally gave up. We for sure felt the sentence of death in ourselves. So the validity of Paul's ministry can't be safety and security. In chapter 2, the validity of Paul's ministry can't be in his lack of opposition. Because he had a guy who tried to split the church, right? He had his own critic who showed up in his church and went toe-to-toe, face-to-face in a confrontation with him. And it was so rough that Paul had to leave. So Paul's validity as a gospel minister can't come as if to think that every time Paul preaches, everybody gets saved. Rather, every time Paul preaches, significant opposition rises, both in his church and even in Ephesus. Paul causes a riot by his preaching. 
So the validity of Paul's ministry can't be in safety and security. It can't be in the relative lack of opposition to the message. And in chapter 3, it can't be in Paul's gifts for ministry. Because it's not as if Paul is validated in his ministry because he's the smartest guy in the room or because he's got the best education or because he's the most gifted and the most eloquent. In fact, he's criticized in this book for not being eloquent enough. So when Paul begins this therefore and he looks back now to the new covenant ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, implicitly what he's saying is the grounds of my ministry are not the things that people would look to as things that are popular, safe, secure, and relatively uh, well-received. That can't be the ground of gospel ministry. Because if it is, gospel ministry is essentially rooted in what man thinks of it. You with me? You understand what I say when I say that? It's that if the gospel ministry is rooted in the opinion and the populace of the people, that is, if many people applaud the gospel message, the message is therefore true. And Paul says that's not how we preached. That's not why the gospel message is true. The gospel message is true because of what God says about Jesus Christ. The gospel message is true because of what God says, not because of what people say. So when you feel that tension in your heart, about why don't they believe the things that I'm saying. I'm a very nice, upstanding individual. I've got a couple of degrees. I've got, uh, I'm pretty successful in my line of work, and these people in my line of work don't believe the gospel. Don't be tempted to shrink back on the gospel, because the gospel is true whether you want to believe it or not. The gospel is true. It shines like the sun. It doesn't matter if a blind guy says the sun's not shining today. The sun still shines. Now watch this. What is the foundation of Paul's ministry? That's the question, right? We have all of these man-centered ideas on what Paul's qualifications ought to look like. All these man-centered qualifications when they critique Paul for not being popular, for not being uh, more, um, having enough rhetorical flourish in the ways that he speaks. Rather, Paul is going to show you that this ministry that he has is a result. Look at what the passage says. Verse 1, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Now that is a profound thing for Paul to say. Because it shows you how Paul understands the gospel. It shows you how Paul sees the truth of Jesus Christ in his own life. Having this ministry, this commission by God given to me to do everything that Jesus wants me to do to make his name great, to go preach the gospel, talk about the gospel, reveal Christ to people, I have it not because I earned it, not because I was qualified for it, but because God was merciful. Because God took the initiative in my life to restrain his wrath, to reveal Christ, to extend mercy, and to save me by grace through faith. Let me prove it to you. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and turn over to 1 Timothy. First Timothy in the pastoral epistles as Paul teaches this young pastor how to minister in a new context in the city of Ephesus. Paul gives you a taste here of his own, uh, his own recounting of what it was like to come to faith. His own experience in explaining to Timothy, this is what it was like for me. This was my subjective experience when I encountered the objective truth of Jesus Christ. 
1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received what? Mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Did Paul earn mercy? No, Paul did everything he could to oppose Jesus Christ. Mercy is rooted in the initiative of God toward people who are, let's read it again, blasphemers, persecutors, and insolent opponents. Not only that, they are ignorant unbelievers. Paul did not get his act cleaned up for God to extend mercy to him. Rather, he was as bad as he could be. Have you murdered Christians? You sure did, Paul. You'll see that in a little bit. Verse 14, and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying, this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. The first time he said I received mercy because I was ignorant. I was an unbeliever. I didn't deserve mercy. God extended it to me. He gave it to me. I didn't search for it. God opened my eyes and gave me mercy. Here, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. How does Paul understand the gospel? He understands the gospel, through, turn back to 2 Corinthians, he understands the gospel message and the gospel ministry that he's been given through the lens of a personal relationship with God where God loved him, showed him grace, gave him the gift of faith, extended mercy to him, restrained his hand of wrath, pointed him to Jesus Christ, enlightened his eyes, and then commissioned him to ministry. Did Paul earn the ministry? No. Is Paul qualified for the ministry? He already said in this book he's not. He said God has qualified us to be ministers of the new covenant. I didn't earn it. I didn't chase it. I didn't look for it. I ignored it. Persecuted, was a blasphemer. I was ignorant and I was unbeliever. But God is great because he has mercy. That's why Paul can say this is a trustworthy statement. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen? That's the testimony of every single Christian in this room. Now, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. Lose heart here probably has to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says, uh, just go back if you look at um, verse 12, 3.12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Remember how Steve shared that with us last week, the boldness of Paul? It's, the idea here is probably not Paul's discouragement. The, probably the idea here is that Paul has received such mercy from Jesus Christ that now his timidity starts to fade and this is the indicator for all of us who are Christians who face that temptation to people please, who face that temptation in the relationships with people at work to shrink back when we start talking about Christ. The only way that you and me are going to have boldness in our relationship to share the gospel of Jesus Christ is if we are incredibly aware of the intimate relationship between ourselves and God through Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you won't be bold. If you don't understand mercy, you won't be bold. If you don't understand grace, if you don't understand what you deserve without Christ, you won't be bold. You with me? 
And that's where Paul is. Because I have experienced and tasted the mercy of God where he has taken away my sin, that the justice that I deserved fell upon Christ and Christ gave me mercy. He restrained the justice of God from me. And he gave me life and he took my death. Now I can therefore be very bold. I don't lose heart. I continue not to be timid. Now, look at verse 2. Let's look at his motives. You know, incidentally, for Paul here too, you know, I can, um, maybe, you're, maybe you're like me. A lot of times when I think about my walk with Christ or the Christian ministry in general, I can uh, look at my circumstances, I can look at my education, I can look at my um, relative clarity with which I, I do what I do. Uh, and all of the tendencies that I have is to look at myself to see whether or not I have what it takes to be effective as a Christian, as a preacher, as a teacher. And it's a, a really dangerous thing. Because inevitably, the longer I look at myself, the more discouraged I get. The longer I look at my own understanding of the gospel or that I might preach it clearly or that I might have the best, you know, most clear illustration and people might go, oh, now I understand it. What I inevitably do is place the, the, the uh, weight of ministry upon my own shoulders rather than upon the mercy of God. And what Paul shows us here is the reason he's bold is because he doesn't believe that ministry depends on him. He doesn't believe that. He already has said, I suffer for it. He already says, I'm filled with anxiety and tears and anguish and the things that I write to you. He's already said, I'm totally insufficient to the task, but for God's mercy. Because if we have the understanding of God's mercy, then we understand that ministry isn't really about us. The gospel message isn't about us. Our job is just to be faithful and clear and leave the consequences to God. Now, I want to show you how this starts to reorient Paul's ministry because in the next couple of verses, he's going to talk about the own personal convictions and ministry that he has. The ways in which he is going to live out this gospel truth that he's experienced and now therefore he's going to extend to other people. Because he's going to recognize a temptation that we all feel when we talk about the gospel message with our kids or our family or our coworkers or our friends or our neighbors or all those things. He's going to experience all those. Look at verse 2. Look at his motives. But because we've received, in verse 1, this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We're not timid. We don't go backwards. Rather, or but contrasting, we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Remember how we said about Paul and his conscience that he preaches with a clean conscience in sincerity, that, his, that he, he holds up his life to the sun. He says, my life is sun-tested. You can see right through me. My conscience is clean before God and men. Here, Paul recognizes that there's an inherent temptation that comes with speaking the gospel to people. And the inherent temptation that comes is wanting so bad for the gospel to work that I don't rely on the mercy of God, but I rely on uh, secret and underhanded motives. Disgraceful or shameful things. That Paul's motives, if they were exposed, might be found to be shameful. This is going to show up later in the book, and Paul's going to say that there are people who work uh, not on the same terms that we do. So that there are two preachers who stand up, two individuals who preach the gospel of God, but one has clean motives and one does not. And Paul makes sure you can smell it. 
He makes sure that you can see those motives aren't right. They may be preaching something that looks good, but something is off. And number two are underhanded things, literally covered things. It's things that are secret, things that are covered up, things that uh, have to do with the hidden things of the heart. So Paul says, we've renounced motives that are impure. Not only that, look at his methods. We refuse to practice cunning. Cunning is a word that is uh, used that means um, like a, uh, it's like a ready to do anything. That the ends justify the means. I don't have to have integrity in the things that I say. As long as I get to the end game. And Paul says both my ministry motives, I have renounced those things. And there are certain things that I will not do. Paul recognizes the mercy of God as now controlling his convictions. Have you ever had to make decisions at work that are explicitly tied to your understanding of Jesus and who he is? Where you have had to say as a Christian, there are certain things I will not do. There are certain things I will not say. There are certain places I will not go because, not because I'm an ethical individual, not because I have high character and high standards, but because I have tasted of the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of Paul's ethical Christian preaching behavior. There are certain motives that are off the table for me. There are certain ministry methods that are off the table for me. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. You ever take medication and look at it? It says, do not use if it's been tampered with. The word was used in ancient Greek for people who would manipulate uh, gold to make it, to take it from, you know, 24 karat to 18 karat to four karat or whatever. Or the same thing with, with wine. They would take wine that's 100 proof and make it about 60 proof, and you could still sell it and make more money and do all that. This word here is a verb. The noun form is used throughout the New Testament as bait on a hook. So the idea is that we refuse now to adhere to methods that are cunning, that they'd say, come one, come all, it doesn't matter what means we use. We can even use deceptive methods so that people might hear our message. Now, are you feeling the temptation in a passage like this? Here's Paul dealing with a church that might be going off the rails with significant opposition in the church, and he's got to write a painful letter to get them back on track to discipline a guy who's in the church. Don't you think the temptation is there for Paul to use some you know, flexibility in the doctrine to make sure that the people applaud what he's saying and get them on his side and start to manipulate the room and work the room so that all of his methods end up in a positive ministry outcome. Don't you feel that temptation for Paul? How he might say, if I can say it this way and kind of obscure the gospel or not come so hard on that truth, maybe they'll be on my side. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But how does he do it? By the open statement, literally the clear display of the truth. What's the truth in context? It's the truth of Jesus Christ. It's the better new covenant ministry, isn't it? It's all of what the ministry that God has given to Paul to preach Christ, the ultimate revelation of God and who he is. 
Paul says, I refuse underhanded ministry motives. I refuse to use improper methods in ministry. Rather, I am going to resolve. I'm going to plan. I'm going to be diligent and disciplined that I would only say what God wants me to say. That by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Paul recognizes that to preach well, to teach the gospel well, requires not profundity, not sophistication. It doesn't require great illustrations. Paul recognizes that the preaching of the gospel requires not cleverness, but clarity. We must be clear. We must with open statement of the truth. This is, I mean, this is one of my, I'm in this line of work, as you can tell. And uh, from time to time, there will be people who are preachers or teachers who will say something that is clever or say something that is sensational or say something with flawed logic or say something that is primarily emotional. And what they will create is a lot of drama, but what they won't do is create clarity. And that bothers me that there would be individuals who manipulate their message in such a way to obscure and confuse and sensationalize gospel ministry. And Paul says, we're not going to go there. We aren't going to use those improper methods. We aren't going to use those improper motives. As much as I may long for the people to change and to understand God's word and to come to an understanding of what the gospel is, there are certain things I cannot and I will not do. Rather, by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves. Literally, that word commend means to hold together. So that Paul views himself as holding the gospel message in the hands of people and he puts them together. And he commends himself to their conscience so that the, he leaves the decision in the hands and the hearts of the people. And as a preacher and teacher who longs for God to do things in this church, for our marriages to be wonderful, for people to repent of sin, to find freedom in Christ, to walk intimately with them, I recognize the temptation that Paul has here. To long for God to do things in you that I cannot do. To pray that the Spirit would take hold of people who have addictions. That there would be freedom from the bondage of sin. And I recognize the only thing that I can do is not manipulate or cajole or be disappointed or be grumpy or yell at you. The only thing that Paul is called to do and therefore good preachers are called to do is to openly declare who Jesus is. To make it plain and get out of the way. We, I, this was years ago. I was in a Panera and I, uh, I used to work at a Panera actually. I would come home smelling like that brown mustard that they have there. It was the worst. Mustard clothes. It was a fine job. God did a lot of stuff there that I wasn't expect, expecting. And one of the things that God did there is I had a chance to disciple a guy who kind of whose life fell apart and I just happened to be there making sandwiches and he's crying next to me. I'm going, maybe this is a ministry opportunity. <laughs> and I'd be doing it, right? 
so we started talking, and we would meet together in the Panera, because I don't know why we didn't go somewhere else, but that's, and we just would come back to work. And sit down, and we'll be at work here, we'll stay here. Uh, and there was a guy that I, I worked with, I wish I could remember his name for this illustration, this would be helpful. Uh, but we were sitting down at a table, and we were talking about the gospel, we were talking about Romans. Me and Jesse, Jesse was the guy I was discipling, and this third guy, Johnny, for the sake of this illustration, Johnny. Johnny's there, and he, he comes over and is interested in what we're doing, and we're, we're kind of just studying and talking, and in the course of this conversation, I know Johnny's listening, I know Johnny is at the table, so I take the opportunity, and all I do is I lay out what the gospel is. Here's what the gospel is, right, Jesse? Jesse's not along because he's a great disciple. And we're laying that out, and we're, we're, I'm, I'm, I just lay it out straight. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any illustrations. I didn't have any moment. I didn't turn and grab Johnny's hand and go, this is what you need in your life. Uh, and I share the gospel, and I get to the end of sharing the gospel, just being very plain, very simple. I didn't use any diagrams or anything. And Johnny is at the end of the table, and Johnny, who I know wasn't like, this is not a man of great ethics and character. As far as I could tell, this man was as far as he could be from knowing Christ and living his life in such a way that would honor him. And when I got to the end of the gospel, I wasn't even asking for a response. And Johnny was a big dude. He was probably 280, you know, like five foot six. So he was big. I could see, I got to the end, I wasn't even looking at him. But this is still a flash in my mind that this big dude leans over the table to me and he goes, that's true. And that was it. There wasn't an, an invitation. There wasn't a, it was, the gospel was made plain and it was commended to his conscience for him to, I don't know what kind of spiritual background he had, but he knew he had heard something he'd never heard before. And his, you could tell his eyes went, I don't know what anybody else is talking about, but that is right. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I wasn't trying to be impressive. I wasn't trying to be popular. I was trying to, as clearly as I could, God, help me make this plain. And Johnny leaned across the table and he says, that's right. This is what Paul says. By open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of. Who does Paul do ministry in the sight of? God. Keep your finger there. Go back to chapter 2, 2.17. 2.17 is, is kind of where Paul picks up this line of thinking. 2.17 says this. We are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. Now in chapter 4, he's talked about renouncing underhanded, disgraceful motives. Refusing cunning. Now, what is, the, what is Paul facing in this church? Peddlers. Remember we talked about peddlers or hucksters, people who are trying to make a sale who will manipulate the, the product so that they'll get as much money as possible. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So watch this. Paul's received mercy. That's the foundation of his ministry. Now, as Paul goes forward in ministry, he recognizes that God's eyes are on him the whole time. So that he commends himself by the clarity and the perspicuity, the specificness of sticking to the gospel message so that God might say, that's true. Now, you with me so far? Paul's now gonna shift, and he's gonna shift into looking at the world. This, Paul's been, this is Paul's personal experience so far, right? 
Here's how I experience mercy. This is how I conduct my ministry. Now, Paul's going to step into the world. He's going to leave Sunday school, and he's going to step out on Monday morning. He's going to talk about what is the world like? I've been given this ministry. I want to commend this ministry. I want it to be as clear as possible in the people I speak to. But what kind of world do we live in? Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled or covered, it's veiled to those who are perishing. He's already talked about perishing and uh, being saved. Remember that? Chapter 2, the aroma of Christ among those who are perishing and being saved. He said the same thing here. It's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now, let's talk about the context in which we do ministry, the context in which you live in this world. John, in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 5, says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were once walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 6 says that we don't, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Where are you doing ministry? You are doing ministry not as the home team. You are doing ministry in the world with the entire uh, demonic host opposed to this message. How in the world do you think Paul is going to feel sufficient to the task? Do you think you want to go toe-to-toe with Satan? Do you think you want to go toe-to-toe with the one who is in control of all philosophy, all false world religions, all sociology, all educational systems, all political systems? What hope do you have in that situation? Where does Paul get this? Do you know where Paul gets this idea? He gets it from Jesus himself. Turn, Turn with me, go back to Acts for just a second. Acts chapter 26. Go back from 1 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians, to Romans, to Acts, right at the end of Acts. This is Acts chapter 26 and his defense before Agrippa. And he tells this king Agrippa, here's what my conversion looked like. Here was my experience with Jesus. Acts chapter 26, verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Sounds like 1 Timothy chapter 1, doesn't it? In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, watch this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. How does Jesus see Paul's ministry? As ransoming people from the domain of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of God's dear son. 
That's the gospel ministry that Paul has been given. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. Amen? Boy, isn't that great? So I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim what? Light to our people and to the Gentiles. Go back to 2 Corinthians. So what is Satan's tactic in the world today? Look at the remainder of 2 Corinthians, if you're back there, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Are y'all there? Can I keep going? Second Corinthians 4. Here's Satan's tactic. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Do you know what Satan's tactic is in your marriage? To get you to look at everything other than Jesus Christ. Do you know that? To do everything possible to turn the lights off and to obscure the importance and the essential, central nature of Jesus Christ in your marriage. Do you know what Satan's tactic is for you at work? is to focus on your boss, the people, the money, the things, the overhead, the blah, 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 so that you would get your eyes off of Jesus Christ. You know what Satan's tactic is in our church? To get your eyes off of Jesus Christ. How are we transformed from one degree of glory to the next? Remember? Beholding Jesus Christ. What is the goal and the ambition and the tactic of Satan in world powers and philosophies and political things and socioeconomic things? It's to intentionally obscure the importance and the centrality of Jesus Christ. The war in our culture is over the obscuring and the ignoring of the purposes and the centrality of Jesus Christ. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Why is Christ so important? The last phrase says it. Who is the image of God. Hebrews says the, he is the exact representation of his nature. Colossians says he is the image of the invisible God. That when you look at Jesus Christ, you know what God thinks, you know what God feels, you know how God cares. To ignore and to reject Jesus Christ is to risk eternal damnation because there is life and light in nobody else. So in everything that you are thinking this week, the singular question that I would counsel you is to ask, where is the place of Jesus Christ in this conversation? You with me? Where is the place of Jesus Christ? If, he, if, for, if all things are created for whom and through whom all things exist, then he has something to say about every single situation in your life right now today. And Paul says Satan is dead set on obscuring his importance and relevance in your life. That's his tactic. Now, are those high stakes for Paul? Do you see why Paul can feel totally insufficient to the task? But for God's mercy. 
Look at verse five. Now, Paul's gonna move from ministry motives and methods, and now what he's gonna do is talk about how he views himself. Everything up to this point in the book so far, from what I can tell, you read and you determine whether or not this is true, has been about Paul's circumstances. We haven't heard a lot about Paul's identity, and Paul's identity here is going to be particularly connected to his relationship to this church. Verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. You know, one of the singular greatest temptations for a preacher and teacher is to make sure that the glory points this way and not this way. You know that? That any time a preacher or a teacher inhabits a pulpit, there is always a sinful tendency, a sinful, ungodly, disbelieving tendency to make this message, our time, our focus, and our attention more about me than it is about him. Always. It's always there. It never leaves. Because I love being well thought of. I love being funny. I love having the attention on the excellence of my craft. And what Paul shows you right here in one verse is how the preaching ministry must terminate in Jesus Christ and not in the preacher. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. 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 And the people that you share the gospel with, you do not proclaim yourself. You do not proclaim your great ethics. You don't proclaim your great significant character or the impact you make at work. We do not proclaim ourselves, church. When we counsel people, we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. He is worthy of building your life upon. I am not. No counselor, no preacher, no teacher, no coach, no boss is worthy of the weight of your life. Only Jesus Christ is worthy of the weight of your life. He alone is worth building your life upon. He alone is worthy of the title Lord in your life. And what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves. No, not ourselves, but with ourselves. Well, Paul, who are you then? How ought we to look at you, Paul? And Paul does something so incredibly risky as a leader in this church. He puts himself beneath the people that he cares about. With ourselves as your servants. What drives Paul's ministry to this Corinthian church? It's that they would be built up. It's that they would be encouraged. It's that they would be protected. It's that they would be saved. It's that they would turn from darkness to light. It's that they would be encouraged. It's that they would have pure gospel doctrine. And Paul says, whatever I need to do in this context, that these people would be built up. Because my ministry, remember, was in the sight of God. Here, his ministry is for who? It's for Jesus' sake. Jesus, how do you want me to love this person? Jesus, how do you want me to serve at work? Jesus, how do you want me to share Christ? Jesus, how do you want me to serve in this context? Jesus, how do you want to make yourself visible in my life? Jesus, whatever I need to do to serve in this context, whatever I need to do to make you seen, whatever I need to do to make what is best for these people come to pass, I will do it because I have so experienced your mercy that you can use my life however you want. You know, this is one of the singular things I look for in Christian leadership as we look for young leaders in our church. 
And you know why it's slow finding young leaders of good quality and character? It's because good deeds take a long time to see. Humble service takes a long time to find because it doesn't show up immediately. Selfish ambition, you can spot that in about 20 minutes. But good, faithful, steady, Christ-honoring, servant-hearted, faithful, others-loving kind of character, you gotta wait because it takes about two, three years for that to come up. To go, have you considered the next step in leadership because of your faithfulness to serve in obscure places for the good of those who don't applaud? And Paul says, that's how you should view us. You should look at me as somebody who is desiring to serve Jesus Christ for your absolute best. You know, um, your understanding of God's mercy may view, will, will definitely impact how you see God. But I would argue that your understanding of mercy hasn't gone deep enough until it affects how you see you. Because that's what Paul shows us here. As he begins to wrap up this idea with one last verse, he shows you that God's mercy has not just shaped how he sees God. Remember 1 Timothy 1? So that in me, I would be the object of revealing Christ's perfect patience. But here, God's mercy has so gripped him that he doesn't need a position, he doesn't need recognition, he doesn't need applause, he doesn't need even to be listened to. He can endure riots and pain and suffering and heartache because he's tasted of the mercy of God and he knows he doesn't deserve it and therefore he will do whatever Jesus wants him to do. He will go wherever Jesus wants him to go because his life is not for his sake but for Jesus' sake. Now watch what he, how he closes this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Do you have a cross-reference there? You should have a cross-reference as Genesis chapter 1. Do you have that? This is the very first place in your Bible that God speaks. Genesis 1, verse 3. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, why does Paul do this? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then, Genesis 1, verse 3. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Where is Paul taking you? He's taking you all the way back to the place where there was no life. All the way back to the place where there was no light. All the way back to the place of God's beginning in dealing with all of the created order. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want a definition of the mercy that Paul has experienced in verse 1? I would say it lands in verse 6. It shows you too that as God creates by his word, God recreates by his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What is so central in Paul's ministry up to this point? It's by open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul pulls no punches because Paul recognizes that he is given the ministry, the particular ministry that is able to give life 
to the dead. That he therefore refuses manipulation, refuses uh, cunning, refuses any kind of underhanded ways because he has tasted of the very clear mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And he recognizes that this is the one who can save anyone. And he takes you all the way back so that you would know as God, God's word creates life on earth in Genesis chapter 1. He'll say this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That now God's word can create life in any dead heart. What is our hope against Satan who is the God of this world? Who seeks to steal and destroy and to kill and to murder it's the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when God, listen, this is the confidence at the end of this passage. Paul's confidence is in the mercy of God, but Paul's confidence is now in the ministry that he's been given that he can mediate life from the dead because of him preaching Jesus. Isn't that great news? Isn't that fantastic to hear? That by the end, we're not left with our hands by our sides wondering how we're gonna face the God of this world, but that Paul says, we have this ministry that is the ministry of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. What ought we to do with it, church? We ought to preach it. We ought to teach it. We ought to counsel it. We ought to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. We ought to be particularly annoying about the fact that we don't look to any other place for people to give life and to experience life in his name. There is no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. There is no other way sins will be forgiven. There is no other way you can have spiritual life. There is no other way you can taste the mercy of God. God, but through the clear preaching and teaching of the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's no other place. We don't move and go anywhere else. So Paul has tasted it. He's experienced it. It, revol it, it, it uh, causes him to renounce and to refuse any and all things. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I could preach a lot of different things, but I'm staying with Christ. Because it's only in Christ that we find life. It's only in Christ that there is light. It's only in Christ that we receive mercy. It's only in Christ that we receive new life from God in heaven. Amen? Amen. Father, we need to be reminded of these things. For those of us who face the temptation to want to do something, to add something, to temper or to tamper with the glory of God as revealed in the gospel, may we return again to the well and the water of life. That would we return again to the one who says, I am the light of the world. May all of us in this church strive to preach and to teach and to counsel and to disciple this next generation to put their eyes on Christ in whom is life and that life was the light of men. Father, if there is someone here today who has not considered the name of Jesus, the claims of who he is, his perfect life, his loving sacrifice on the cross for our sins, his death, his burial, his resurrection, by which he proclaims that our sins are actually and forever forgiven and removed from us, that we can have new life and new light in relationship with him, I pray that by faith you would cause their hearts to come alive here today. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.